0: So I'll invite you please to rise for the gospel reading, which comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. I really hope I have my sermon in here. <laughs> Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets, and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen the word of god word of life thanks be to god please be seated i did not include it in here i was getting ready for next week and i forgot about this week oh my goodness there we are sorry So once again, we have a parable that makes us squirm a little. Last week, we heard the parable of the landowner who set up the vineyard and then hired landless tenants to do the work. And when the harvest time came, he sent his slaves to collect his proceeds. Only the tenants killed the slaves and eventually the son. When asked what the landowner should do, The priests and Pharisees said that he should kill the wicked tenants and place worthy tenants in their place. And instead of confirming their response, Jesus reminded them that God works counter to what we think, making what is rejected the cornerstone and foundation to the building of faith. And the leaders were shocked. Today once again, we have another shocking parable. And I wonder if we have learned anything from last week. What will factor into our understanding and interpretation of Jesus' words today? Well, if we take the parable at face value and interpret it classically, we'll put God as the king and Jesus as the son, because, of course, all parabolic authoritarian males are God, and all parabolic sons must be Jesus. And the king prepares the wedding and tells all the invitees that it is ready You see, weddings weren't a save-the-date kind of event in that time. Instead, the couple would announce their engagement and then begin all the preparations to be married. And those preparations could include building their lodgings as well as raising the animals in anticipation of the sacrifice and the meal. So whenever everything had been completed, Then the servants would be sent out to tell everyone that the party was ready, and now they can gather and eat. And the people would drop everything to celebrate with their friends this new chapter in the life of the couple. Only in this case, no one was interested in going. And this isn't just any wedding. This is the king's son. This is a big deal. To deny this wedding meant denying the king. This wasn't just a social faux pas. This was a political rebellion. No one denies the king. And when he sends the second batch of slaves, while some of the people go back to their work, some stay and kill the slaves. And in retaliation, the king annihilates the whole city and all of its inhabitants. Now traditionally, we assume that these first invitees were, again, the Jews who denied Jesus as Christ. They killed the faithful and the prophets, so God removed the promise from them and sent for the lowly, undeserving Gentiles who resided on the margins. In those days, when people attending a wedding attended a wedding, the host would provide robes to place over their everyday clothes. So there was apparently no reason that anybody would not be dressed appropriately. And yet, one person did not wear the celebratory robes of the wedding feast. So the king had him bound and cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because Matthew really likes that phrase. So I'm wondering, is this the kind of God we lift up? One who is vengeful? One who throws a tantrum at the first sign of dissent? One who, when the invited refuse to come, seeks to fill the banquet with nobodies to save face and make it appear that many people love him. One who insists that the nobodies celebrate while the city burns outside the castle, pretending that nothing is wrong and that they need not worry about a thing. One whose salvation has strings attached to it. Is this the kind of God we lift up? I don't think so. So look again at how Jesus starts the parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to. It's in the passive voice and it could also be translated the kingdom of heaven has been compared to. This is how people have come to see God. Often how we have come to see God and again this viewpoint has led to so much unnecessary and unjust Jewish bloodshed on behalf of religious superiority. But what if we read this differently? The kingdom of heaven has been compared to a man-king. Both words are used here in Greek. And this man-king was throwing a wedding banquet for his son. And as I pointed out, the A-list invitees refused to come. They refused to submit to this sham of a king, and for good reason, it turns out. He has a short fuse and a violent temper, and he can't abide being seen as wrong or unpopular. Jesus' audience would have noticed connections to their narcissist king, Herod. And the priests and the Pharisees weren't just religious leaders. They were puppets of the king. So what Jesus points out to them here is very poignant. And Matthew's audience would have made the connection to Domitian, the tyrant Roman Empire who insisted on being called son of God, not just a man-king. And as we see, though only a few are guilty of killing the king's slaves, the whole city is destroyed and its inhabitants killed because they made the king look bad, because they dared to go against his directions. And he sends out more slaves to gather anyone left over, those pitiful people on the margins and the streets that run the outskirts of town. Beggars, homeless, nobodies. They're not going to deny him. They're hungry. They aren't stupid enough to turn down a free meal, and it will look good on his resume. Look how beneficent he is. And so they come. And they're forced to wear celebratory clothing and pretend to have a good time, even as their city burns to the ground beyond the castle doors. Except one. One person descends. One person refuses to bow down to this tyrant. One person stands his ground. Who is he? Who would dare? Who could possibly stand up to this man king? Whoever he is, he is bound and thrown out, supposedly to death and worse. Who do you suppose he was? I suspect it was Jesus. He would have been with the riff-raff of the second invitation, amidst the beggars and the homeless and the hungry, because that's where he's always found. Only he's not intimidated by the power of the king, and he's not intimidated by any worldly power. And instead of bowing down to the powers of this world, he chooses death. He chooses murder. He chooses to go to the cross, to the tomb, and to death, rather than undermine his integrity by partaking of the food provided by this tyrant king. He goes to death as an example of what our ideas of power and victory and kingship do to others. Now, I know this is a very different way of reading this parable than many of you have experienced. But consider this. What would change for you if Jesus was the unrobed guest and not the furious king in this story? What would you have to change to welcome such a guest? To honor such a guest? To accompany such a guest? What robes of privilege, power, wealth, empire, location, and complicity would you have to refuse to wear? What holy rebuke would you have to speak or embody when the king demands your cheery presence at his table? What feasts would you have to forego to follow the unrobed dissenter when he's escorted into the darkness, bound and broken for the sake of love?" I'm reminded of Lenny Duncan, the queer black pastor who wrote the book, Dear Church, A Love Letter to the Whitest Denomination in America. And in it, he comments on this very robe that we wear as pastors. He says that when he was first introduced to the robe as a seminarian, all he could see was a white robe with a pointed hood. He said, I perceived those white hooded robes as an existential threat against my personhood. And when he brought it up to those in power, they wrote him off. They said, now we're not going to allow a blip in human history to change the symbolic meaning of what these robes have stood for for 1,800 years of church history. The problem is, he says, that blip in human history is the attempted genocide of my people. So now I wear a black cassock when I lead worship, because whiteness does not equal holiness. And blackness does not equal evil, brokenness, or self-denial. Black is holy. So what does this have to do with this parable? It has everything to do with it. Duncan also says in his book, The truth is, we have allowed the church to become married to the dominant culture of North America and the cross to become a symbol of its original purpose to inspire fear, to intimidate, to be a symbol of death rather than life, of punishment rather than res- restoration, the harbinger of chains rather than liberation. Friends, that's exactly what happened to the religious leaders of the first century and before. It's what happens anytime powers try to align religion with political goals when the church enables systemic injustice we are no longer acting like the church we make god out to be a tyrant king and laud those who follow suit but that's not the god of the bible it's not the god of jesus or his parables the god we worship is one who would prefer death to collusion who would prefer the cross to corruption, who would prefer death and resurrection to the half-life of arrogance, greed, and pride. The God we worship is the one who offers us this same resurrection life, true life found outside the walls of nation or kingship or wealth or royalty. It's the life found in the margins, on the outskirts, among the disenfranchised, and yes, even in the outer darkness, where the stars shine the brightest. Amen.